People dedicate their lives to it. It determines who is rewarded and who suffers. It serves as a guiding pillar for most of society. But at its core, it relies on a falsehood. It's fake. It's a lie! I'm not sure what popped into your mind just now, but today on Mondo Mercado, we're talking about money, specifically currency. The lie that underlies all our lives. We're going to talk about its history, its value, and speculate on its future. Come on. I need a dollar, 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 that's what I need. From the Georgia Tech Center for International Business Education and Research at the Scheller College of Business, this is Mondo Mercado Understanding Global Markets. Mondo Mercado aims to demystify the complex world of international business through education and entertainment. Now you might be scratching your head at that opening. If you're like most people, you've been brought up with the perception that cash is cold and hard. But in reality, currency has been made from different things at different times and has served different purposes. Sometimes we talk about items being used as currency, but that's not really accurate. For example, when North Korea opened the Kaesong Industrial Region to limited foreign direct investment in 2002, South Korean firms opened factories to take advantage of the low labor costs of North Korean workers. By 2013, the factories in Kaesong were employing 53,000 North Korean workers, and the annual wages for those workers, some $90 million annually, were paid directly to the North Korean government. Individual North Korean workers averaged between $1 and $200 a month in wages. The South Korean managers wanted to give bonuses to high-performing North Korean workers, but direct bonus payments were blocked by the North Korean government on the basis that they needed to, quote, avoid ideological unrest, end quote. So instead, North Korean workers were given chocopies. Orion chocopie. Chocopies were highly prized by the North Koreans, and a single pie was valued at about $10, or about 7% of the average worker's monthly wages. Between 2008 and 2014, the Lotte Corporation sent 1.2 million boxes of chocopies to North Korea. Nuclear tests in 2013 caused the Kaesong complex to be temporarily shut down, and North Korea moved to quash this economy-destabilizing snack. When Kaesong reopened, chocopie bonuses were forbidden, in favor of sausage, noodles, coffee, and chocolate. North Korea also began manufacturing its own chocopies and flooding the market with locally-made knockoffs to eliminate the economic threat. Now, chocopies were a repository of value, and definitely transactions were conducted with the exchange of chocopies, but chocopies were not a currency. Modern currencies are designed to be worthless. If you're a hardworking North Korean mom or dad, you want to bring chocopies home to your children for their consumption. In a country where the average daily dietary consumption per capita is 1,700 calories less than Americans, chocopies are a delicious burst of calories. So they aren't the medium of exchange. They're the item of value being exchanged itself. Nearly everyone loves chocopies. So the barrier to most barters, coincidence of wants, isn't much of an issue for chocopies. Also, chocopies lack a lot of other characteristics we attribute to currency. They aren't durable. 
one or two transactions, and pretty soon the choco pie crumbles into a melancholy bag of sweet dust. There aren't financial institutions dedicated to the exchange and accumulation of choco pies. But today, we're going to talk to experts to give us insight into the history of how currency came to be and what it might become in the future. My name is uh, Blake Leland. I'm an associate professor in uh, what is now the School of Literature, Media, and Communication. It, it was previously the School of Literature, Communication, and Culture. And uh, in 1988, when I first arrived at Tech, it was the English department. How was money invented or discovered? Partly it depends on what you want to call money. Some people limit it to the concept of coinage. I tend not to. I tend to think of money as being a much broader concept. Coins come later. They're very important, particularly in the development of, of human civilization. But I think money precedes coinage. And um, as the dictionary puts it, uh, money is, uh, quote, any objects or tokens regarded as a store of value and used as a medium of exchange. So, you know, there are things that we could call money that we find in very non-modern cultures. Like, um, for example, one of the most interesting is of Native Americans of the Pacific Northwest, uh, whose uh, central economic activity is uh, something called, or was something called potlatch. One of the objects that was central in potlatch was something called a copper. Really, it looks sort of like a shield or something like that, a small, smaller than an actual shield, but uh, just this object made out of copper, and uh, they were incredibly valuable, but they're not a coin. But I do think they function as, as, as a store of value, as it were, um, and uh, I would consider that a kind of money. So I think money is, in, in that general sense, a very, very old um, element of, of human society. Now, was this money used for exchange? Uh, could it be used outside of the potlatch culture people? Not likely. Um, okay. You know, the, the, I mean, the fact that it's made out of copper makes us think perhaps that, you know, it's, it's well, it's very low on the precious metal scales, but mm. um, we're used to thinking of metal money as having uh, a kind of intrinsic value which is kind of nonsensical, I think. But nevertheless, um, no, it couldn't really. It really was part of, of their system. Uh, these objects certainly do exist outside of the potlatch system, but they end up in museums. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, in, in that sense, they're, they're very valuable, but they're not really part of a, a kind of anything that we would recognize as ordinary economic exchange. Are, are we at a point where we're at a new milestone for the technology of money? Well, I suppose so. I mean, we've been making money more and more conceptual over the centuries. And you know, we've gotten to the point where it's a pattern in the electromagnetic spectrum. From you know, once upon a time, it was big old stone from you know, the Yap culture, for example, or copper plate from... Uh, the Pacific Northwest, or an ingot of gold or silver, and then eventually, you know, the the, the startling idea of paper money, and and now we're, you know, now we don't even have we don't we don't even have exactly 
what you would call money in our pockets anymore. It's just, um, it's just an electronic scribble, as it were. And how does this change in, in monetary technology? How does it affect the way we do business with each other? Well, that's an interesting question. It, it certainly makes things happen faster and uh, much more efficiently. I think, you know, money, uh, particularly sort of focused concept of money from coinage onwards, uh, I think that's one of the things that money is about, um, making, making exchange uh, fast and efficient and reliable. And when uh, Croesus, of, of Richard's Croesus fame, uh, when uh, Croesus invented the idea of stamping gold and uh, guaranteeing its uh, weight and purity in, in the mid-500 B.C., that was a radical change, and it, it made money very, very useful, and it, it, it enabled extraordinarily... For, at the time, extraordinarily uh, rapid and efficient exchange. People didn't have to weigh every coin and make sure that it was pure gold and that kind of thing. The state was guaranteeing that sort of thing. So we've been on that track for uh, 2,500 years or so, but now we've gotten to the point where um, the kind of virtuality of money um, the, makes exchange extraordinarily quick, rapid, and convenient. So we've had a deep dive into the nature of currency. When we come back, we'll talk with Amy Hennessy at the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta to talk about misconceptions about currency, including its history in the Americas and what a fiat currency is. Helpful hint, even though you can use it to buy an Italian car, that's not what it means. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Hello, this is Michael Oxman, Managing Director of the Ray C. Anderson Center for Sustainable Business at Scheller College of Business. We at the center are working to integrate environmental and social issues that present both risks and opportunities to the private sector into business school education and practice. We do this through academic research, courses and co-curricular activities that emphasize real-world engagement with corporate partners, and via collaboration on a range of international sustainability issues. For more information, you can find me at michael.oxman at scheller.gotech.edu. Thank you. So I'm here with Amy Hennessy of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. Uh, Amy, could you do a little self-introduction for us? Sure. Um, my name is Amy Hennessy, and I'm the Director of Outreach and Economic Education for the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. What, is, what do most people misunderstand about money? Well, we get this. I, I get this a lot with groups that come in to tour the Monetary Museum at the at Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. And that would be that many people still mistakenly think that money is backed by some precious metal. Often, generally speaking, they think it's backed by gold and that somehow the value uh, associated with the money that they have to spend, whether it's the cash or whether it's their you know, money in their bank accounts and so forth, is you know somehow convertible into this precious metal and that that gives it value. And, and then they take it to and that provides stability and so forth. And that's that would be the most common misunderstanding, I think, is that that really we live in a fiat monetary system 
and you know an inconvertible fiat monetary system and do so because of trust trust in the fact that we will preserve the the stability of uh, the spending power the purchasing power of money back in the day you know in this country i think massachusetts bay colony first issued paper notes in 1690 and and invariably those early colonies ultimately had to resort to um, printing paper currency to fund oftentimes military expeditions or some kind of public works project and because there was a persistent shortage of coin in the colonies. The coin ultimately, the gold and silver coin that flowed because of, of trade and the mercantilist system, it ended up back in England and it just there was a persistent shortage of coin. At any rate, um, you either... So kind of early in the evolution of money, you either backed money by a, a, some kind of precious metal so that it was convertible or, and, or, and or redeemable, and, or then you used coercion. What do I mean by coercion? Well, you know, it was the only, it would become the only accessible, acceptable payment for debts or for taxes, ultimately. Um, but over time, that... As we evolved, and you know, by the twentieth century, mid twentieth century, and so forth, it becomes um, obvious you don't actually have to have that um, backing by a metal standard or the coercion. I mean, even though it says you know the the Federal Reserve notes are uh, acceptable for all you know legal tender for all legal debts, tender public, for all mm, debts, public and private. Exactly. What's the role of currency on interactions between countries? Well, so money flows are all part of our, you know, fundamental accounting principles in terms of international exchanges, the flows of goods and services, the flows of assets and so forth and the balance of payments. Um, and, you you know, again, you ultimately have to sum out. So you've got the flows and, you know, there's various different terms of trade when you are you know, importing and exporting and um, when you are exchanging one currency for another. Um, you know, ideally, in essence, you'd like a one-to-one exchange, but there's an advantage that ultimately is established just like any market of supply and demand. There's going to be a supply and demand force at play in a uh, foreign exchange market. And so, you know, yeah. a, a currency will appreciate or depreciate depending on various factors. Um Right. That, you know, interest rate um, for from an, an investment perspective, if your um, rates of interest are more attractive in another country, investors are going to move into that, which, again, will affect the appreciation and depreciation of the currencies in question. Right. Yeah. The, the end, of <clears throat> course, of the Bretton Woods system mm, um, mm-hmm. uh, up to 1971 was yes. literally the final nail in the coffin. Yep, it was. Um, during Bretton Woods. And Nixon th- takes us on that Nixon right, shock. Mm-hmm. Right. I think people don't understand that basically from the end of World War II until 1971, that all currencies, not only were they convertible, but they were also fixed in value to each other. Correct. Under the Bretton Woods Agreement. Under Bretton Woods, Mm -hmm. yes. Yep, they were. and And people don't understand that. So now we have a better understanding of what currency is and isn't. We're going to look back at a time that a country used a virtual currency to change everyone's mind about the value of money by shifting the economic narrative when we return.
This is Robert Burgess, the Administrative Director of the Denning Technology and Management Program, abbreviated TNM. Our office is in the Scheller College of Business here at Georgia Tech. The TNM program is a competitive admission minor that's designed to breed cross-functional leaders in technology and business-related fields. The classes emphasize experiential learning and include hands-on elements that allow those TNM students the opportunity to offer interdisciplinary solutions to real-world problems faced by our corporate affiliates. All undergraduate majors on campus are welcome to apply each October for admission to the cohort the following fall semester. About 300 students apply each year. It's a very selective program as we only have 65 seats in each cohort. If you'd like more information about the TNM program, please contact me at robert.burgess, B-U-R-G-E-S-S, at scheller, S-C-H-E-L-L-E-R, dot Before we begin this segment, I do feel it's necessary to play a short disclaimer. Para você que é falante de português, saiba que é uma língua muito bonita. Porém, o locutor não teve a chance de aprender a falar perfeitamente. Então, pede desculpas antecipadamente por algum erro de pronúncia que venha a cometer. In 1994, Brazil was in trouble. And the solution didn't come from an adjustment of the so-called fundamentals. It involved, to use the terminology popularized by Nobel Prize-winning economist Robert Schiller, reframing the economic narrative. And a virtual currency. Yes, you heard that right. A virtual currency in 1994. For more than a decade, Brazil had been stuck in a cycle of hyperinflation. Between 1984 and 1994, the average annual inflation rate was over 1,000%, with a spike of almost 3,000% in 1990. Stores had implemented a procedure of increasing prices in the middle of the day to keep up. Individuals had no incentive to save because their savings would become worthless sitting in the bank. By 1994, the gross savings rate had plummeted to around 5%. The narrative among the people was that currency was like ice or eggs or the music of LMFAO. You need to use it now because it has zero shelf life. No matter what the Brazilian government tried, freezing prices, changing the denomination of currencies, that is, dropping zeros off the end, or even recalling and issuing new currency four times, the Cruzado, Cruzado Novo, Cruciero, and Cruciero Real, nothing could stop the inflationary spiral. In 1994, Itamar Franco became the 33rd president of Brazil. He did not come to the position under the best of circumstances. He had been the vice president of Fernando Collor de Gimeo. Collor was the first president directly elected by the Brazilian people after a 21-year-long period of military dictatorship. Franco had been added as Collor's running mate because Collor was from the small state of Alagoas, sometimes referred to as Brazil's Rhode Island. Franco, on the other hand, was from Minas Gerais, the second most populous state in Brazil. Collor and his finance minister, Zelia Cardoso Gimeo, no relation, had undertaken a radical plan of privatization, opening to free trade, industrial modernization, inflationary countermeasures, and reduction of public debt. Some of the reforms enacted under Collor had a positive effect, but the anti-inflation measures failed shortly after a brief period of seeming to work. Collor was accused of an influence peddling scheme in 1992, and had resigned in an ineffective attempt to stave off impeachment. 
Franku, in many ways, was the exact opposite of Golor. Golor was a handsome, dynamic scion of a famous political family. Franku, on the other hand, was born at sea prematurely to a mother raised by Italian immigrants. Franku's father had died before his birth. He graduated with a degree in civil engineering from the School of Engineering at Uiz de Fora. His thick glasses, bland expression, and shock of wild hair that almost, but didn't quite cover his rapidly receding hairline, gave him more of the air of an engineering professor than a head of state. When Franco became president, he had been vice president for almost three years. However, in polls at the time, the majority of the population had no idea who he was. His most notable action before becoming president was distributing a statement of personal worth and a full declaration of all of his assets to the members of the Brazilian Senate in a bold act of financial transparency. Franco selected Fernando Enrique Cardoso, a sociologist by training and with a PhD in sociology, as his minister of finance. As a sociologist, Cardoso recognized the problem with the societal narrative about money. That's why previous attempts to stop the spread of inflation had failed. He also recognized that he did not know anything about economics, so he called some economists he knew, including Edmar Bacha, Percio Arida, and Andre Lara. Arida and Lara had created and published a plan to deal with persistent inflation all the way back in 1984, called the Larida La Plan, or Plano Larida. At first, the economists did not want to be involved, but with an unprecedented persuasion campaign, they were able to get Bacha, Arida, Lara, and the other economists to buy in. The economists understood that the problem was the economic narrative. So in order to change the narrative, they created a virtual currency, the Unidad Real de Valor, the real value unit in English, or URV for short. It was never issued, never minted, but it did exist in one distinct way. It was printed on all prices in stores. The Cruciero Real was allowed to inflate as before, but URVs were fixed to the US dollar at a one-to-one -one rate. Everything was listed in URVs, and the exchange rate between the URVs and the Cruceros Raiz was published daily by the government. The URVs were created in March 1994, but there was no legal tender issued until July 1st of that year. By fixing the price of the dollar, prices in URVs would stay stable. People began to think in URVs. Once this non-inflationary mentality had taken hold, the central bank issued a new currency, the Rayu. After that, Cruceros Raiz were replaced with Rayu. So on July 1st, Brazil's inflationary spiral was broken with a non-shock shock treatment. Within 45 days, all of the country's legal tender was replaced. It is one of the largest currency exchanges in history, on par with the 2016 Indian banknote demonetization. After the money was replaced, many other reforms were undertaken as part of the Plano Rio. First, state-owned gas and telecommunications industries were privatized. New transparency regulations and requirements were pushed out to the finance and banking industries and the implementation of the so-called macroeconomic tripod, the requirement for a government budgetary surplus, that is spending less money than it takes in from taxes, inflation targeting, and a floating exchange rate. These changes allowed the Brazilian economy to continue to grow for many years after the initial Plano Rio. So in a very real way, Brazil's economy was saved by a fake currency. So what are our three takeaways? 
First, what currency means has changed throughout history and will continue to do so. We cannot predict if cryptocurrencies or cashless payment systems will be successful or not, but currency innovations are not all new. And even if these are successful, they will be replaced by some new innovation in the future we can't see yet. Second, because currencies are inherently valueless by design, volatility is a condition that will never be permanently overcome. Stability is the exception, not the norm. Third, so-called fundamentals and the data which support them impact value, but their impact is less important than the social narrative supporting or refuting them. Always remember that when markets seem to be behaving irrationally, currency is inherently irrational. And a quote attributed to John Maynard Keynes, but probably was actually coined by Gary Schilling, markets can remain irrational a lot longer than you and I can remain solvent. In parting, we want to issue two apologies. First, apologies to native speakers of Brazilian Portuguese for the mispronunciation of so many names and terms. Second, we also want to apologize to the music group LMFAO for the cheap shot in this episode. We reached out to the lead vocalist of the group, Redfoo, who reminded us that jealousy for other people's financial success is a source of negative karma. We throw this cash, we get money, don't be mad, now stop, hating is bad. We apologize profusely to Mr. Redfoo, and should he ever come and visit us, we'd be happy to share our choco pies with him. That's it for this episode. Coming up next time, bonus episode. Have you ever wondered where our name, Mondo Mercato, comes from? Next episode, we will tell you the story of the world's most successful synthetic language, Esperanto. While you might not be speaking Esperanto anytime soon, the story of its creation provides lessons and inspirations for us today and into the future. Please join us. Mercado is a production of the Georgia Tech Center for International Business Education and Research, funded by the U.S. Department of Education and housed at the Scheller College of Business at the Georgia Institute of Technology in beautiful Midtown Atlanta, Georgia, USA. If you like this episode, please like, share, and subscribe. We aren't trying to gather huge piles of currency for making these shows, but the more people who enjoy them and learn, the happier we are. Thanks. Special thanks to Amy Hennessy of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta and Blake Leland of the School of Literature, Media, and Communication at Georgia Tech. The Georgia Tech Center for International Business Education and Research is under the direction of Dr. John McIntyre. The editor for this episode is Aaron Schaefer. The producer is James Hoadley. Special thanks to the Scheller College of Business, Joe Macri, and Charlie Bennett, Public Engagement Librarian for the Georgia Tech Library. The opinions expressed in this episode are the opinions of the speakers only and do not constitute an official statement of the Georgia Institute of Technology of the U.S. Department of Education. Information on Mondo Mercado is provided for educational purposes only and does not constitute professional advice. Always contact a qualified professional before undertaking any business investment. Special thanks to KCEL Productions.
Every day I'm shuffling.